Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. The outline of this message, speaker, message title, and series can be found in the show notes or the details page. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or on our church website at Bethlehem505.com. And now, here is the message. Courage. I think it takes a good bit of courage to ask the question that's at the top of your sermon notes page this morning. What shall we do? (laughs) You see, it takes courage because we know that if we receive an answer to that question, what shall we do, then we'll actually need to do something in response. Now that very question was asked by a large crowd of people on one of the most important days in the history of the planet. It was a day that God had planned for thoroughly and prepared for extensively and eagerly anticipated. What day was it? Was it the day of Jesus' birth? No. As very important as that was. Was it the day of Jesus' crucifixion when he died for our sins? That wasn't the day either, as important as that was. Was it the day Jesus rose from the grave? Nope. As important as that was. The day I am referring to that's described in Acts 2 was the day when God first explained all those other important days. It was the day Jesus had been talking about when he said in Matthew 16 to a few of his disciples, Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. This was the day. It was the day when the Apostle Peter would use the keys that Jesus promised him to open the door to God's kingdom, the church. It was the day the gospel message would be preached for the very first time after Jesus' death and resurrection. And the day when God would first answer the question of how to become a Christian and how to be saved. The first day. The day of Pentecost. Acts 2 opens up with these words. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Pentecost. The Old Testament Feast of Harvest, or the Feast of Weeks. One of the three most important and significant Jewish festivals in their yearly calendar. It came 50 days after Passover. And, of course, Jesus had died on the cross during Passover. And thousands of Jews that year had returned to Jerusalem for the festival, just like they did every other year. And because God knew that thousands would be there like every other year, he chose that day to introduce the greatest news in the world. Chapter 2, verse 5 describes 
who all was there. It says, now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under earth. Verse 9, there were Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. People were there from all over. And it was just the right time. It was the right time. It was just enough time after Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that people would have had time to check all those things out and see if they really had happened. People could ask. People could, uh, could go around. People could even go and see him before his ascension. The right preachers were there. Jesus' apostles. The very men that Jesus had chosen, taught, loved, trained, and prepared Largely for that very day. And toward the end of Acts chapter 2, as we will see, after these men spoke the gospel message about Jesus, they were asked that burning question that we're asking today, what shall we do? It's in verse 37. So today we're going to ask that question with them. And to do that, I want us to focus on three things that are true about the gospel message concerning Jesus Christ. And the first thing is this. The gospel message calls for a response. Today's question was elicited by a grand declaration in Acts 2, verse 36. I contend this is the most, absolutely most important verse in Acts 2. Maybe in the book of Acts. Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. And immediately, verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? There's the question, what shall we do? So today we ask that question with them, and to do that we're going to um, look at what it means to, that God calls for a response. First of all, we respond to a God who calls for action. Our God is all about action. We worship an action-oriented God. Genesis 1, we see God for the first time. He's creating all through the Bible, God is active. He's doing things. He's intervening. And all through the Bible, God is calling for an active response from people. He called Abraham to go. He called Joshua to lead. To Moses, several times he says to go. He goes, go assemble the leaders of Israel. Go back to Egypt. Go tell Pharaoh. On the mountain, he says, now go back down because the people have gotten messed up. He called the prophets to go and to speak and to write and to act things out. God's always been an initiator of action in himself and in people. And Jesus did the same thing. Jesus said more than once, follow me. He said to ask. He said to seek. He said to knock. He said to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. One day in Luke 11, as we saw not that many weeks ago, Jesus was teaching, and a woman hollered out about how wonderful a teacher he was, but he, he totally shifted the subject. 
uh, this way in his response. Jesus was saying these, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in a crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. Just a simple compliment, I think. And he replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Jesus was emphasizing what his half-brother James would later emphasize in his epistle in chapters 1 and 2 when he says we need to do something about what we believe. The very concept of faith is all about believing something enough to do something about it. Faith without action is dead, James 2 says. So we respond to a God who calls for action. But also, point B, we respond to a God who does amazing things, and we read about those amazing things in this chapter. But back in chapter 1, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus makes a promise to his apostles. By then it was 11, then it became 12 again. But anyway, in verse 8, Jesus made this promise to his apostles. He goes, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, we're getting ready to read where that comes true in chapter 2. But then he says this, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you're going to receive power, but for a purpose, because it means you have to go do something about it. Well, here's the promise of power coming true in chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Ultimately, or I mean utterly amazed, they ask, are not these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Now skip the places we already read and go down to verse 12, or into verse 11. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, uh, they've had too much wine. Now, why did God do all that? Why did God do all that a miracle? Why did he empower those apostles to speak fluently in all those languages they had never studied? Because it says they were declaring the great works of God in these other languages. Why did God do that? Because God was turning a new page in history. Mankind was entering a new era, a new dispensation of time, a new period of history. And God was saying, I want you to notice that something new is happening here. Throughout Bible history, there are basically there have basically been three dispensations or ages, periods of time. A dispensation, basically, is a period of time during which God reveals a certain area or aspect of his will and deals with mankind in a certain way. And we're going to put up here three, the three dispensations that, have, that cover Bible history. Maybe this is an oversimplification. You can fudge a little bit on maybe a part of a chapter or something. But basically, there was first the patriarchal age, which went from the beginning of time, beginning of creation, to Mount Sinai, the giving of the law. 
Genesis 1 through Exodus 19 slash 20. The Mosaic Age then began very dramatically uh, at Mount Sinai, and that went to the beginning of the church at Pentecost that we're seeing in Acts today. So Exodus 20 to Acts chapter 1, which then began what we know as the Christian Age, the last days, as you usually referred to in the New Testament, that whole period, from Pentecost to the future return of Jesus. In other words, Acts 2 to Revelation, well, probably technically 19, or 20, and then 21 and 22 would be after that. But the point is, if you look at the two times that God changed dispensations, he did very dramatic, miraculous things to make the point. In Exodus 19, the first time, going from the patriarchal age to the Mosaic age, Exodus 19, verse 16 through 19, God did a bunch of dramatic things. There was smoke, there was thunder, there was lightning. He literally shook the mountain violently. He shook a mountain to say, something's new today. Well, in Acts 2, God was getting everyone's attention once again because it was time for a God-induced revolution to begin the Christian age. We respond to a God who does amazing things. But also when we respond to God, we respond to a God who keeps his word. This is going to be brief, but look at verse 14 through the first part of 17. We'll skip a little bit here. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It is only nine in the morning. No, he says, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, that last dispensation, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then it goes on to describe that whole process. And then in verse 21, it says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a prophecy from Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, verse 28 to 32, 800 years before the day of Pentecost. And Peter basically in verse 16 is saying, okay, everybody, this is it. This is what Joel was talking about 800 years ago. God has predicted it, and it has come true in the last days, the last dispensation. So we respond to a God who keeps his word. But also point D, we respond to a God, this is what's most important, who sent his son. Verse 22 begins the real stuff God wanted to talk about. The rest is all kind of show to get prepared for verse 22. I want you to notice, this is where he gets to the real point. As amazing as everything had been so far, those incredible, incredible miracles were not the highlight of the day of Pentecost. They were the pregame show. They were the warm-up concert to get everybody's attention. All that stuff was to prepare people for the real message of declaring that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was the Son of God and was the Messiah. Same thing God did in Exodus 19, did all the miracles so that in chapter 20, he says, here's the Ten Commandments. So verse 22, here's his real point. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you 
through him as you yourselves know. What's he saying in one little verse? He's saying Jesus specifically of Nazareth. In other words, he's an historical figure, an actual person, and he's saying to this audience, many of you met him. Many of you heard him teach. Many of you saw him perform miracles. Many of you saw him tried and crucified. And many of you talked to him sometime in the 40 days after his resurrection. Jesus of Nazareth. He was accredited by God. In other words, God proved he was who he was through the miracles he performed and the dead people he raised. And then I love this phrase, which God did among you. There were a lot of witnesses, and a lot of those witnesses were sitting there listening to Peter that very day. But then he gets to verse 23, and he says, This man, this Jesus of Nazareth, was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, <laughs> with the help of women, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You see, this was God's plan all along. He says, you and wicked men put the Son of God to death. So here's the point for you and me today. Peter is saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, God sent Jesus to die for us. God sent Jesus to die for us. And that calls for some kind of a response from us. We are called to respond to a God who sent his son for us. But it didn't stop there. Next verse reminds us that we are to respond to a God who raises the dead. Verse 24, right after you helped kill him, it says this, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then it says, David said about him, and it quotes from Psalm 16, where David says this, a thousand years before, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, or literally Hades. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. That was Psalm 16. And now notice what it says starting in verse 29. Peter says, by the Holy Spirit, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he is not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to this fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. I think it's striking that God, through the Holy Spirit, through Peter, uses 12 verses to prove that God raised Jesus from the dead. He spent one verse on Jesus' miracles, one verse on Jesus' crucifixion, but 12 verses to say, but he was raised from the dead. And he says, verse 32, we're all witnesses. A lot of those people had seen Jesus after the resurrection. You see, that's the gospel message that Peter has just described in that long message. 
1 Corinthians 15 summarizes what the gospel is. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. In other words, believed in not anything about it. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. That's the gospel, and that calls for a response from every person once they hear that message. More specifically, the gospel message calls not just for a response, but for a decision. It calls for a decision. Verse 36, again, is the key verse here. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, or Messiah. And it's as if Peter is saying, okay, this is the deal, and now you have to deal with it. What are you going to do with him? What are you going to do with him? Not what are you going to do with the Jews, what are you going to do with some hypocritical Christian? What are you going to do with him, Jesus? Verse 37 says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Verse 40, it says, Peter, with many other words, warned them and he pleaded with them. In other words, there's a lot of more that Peter said that's not recorded for us. He said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. In other words, they had to do something about what they had just heard. Nice Jesus died on the cross, nice that he rose again, but every person on the planet has to now decide, what am I going to do with that news now that I know it? It called for a decision. Now, I want to suggest this morning that that in, in, decision involves two aspects. And I want you to listen carefully to both of them because I think through the years, we in the religious world have focused on one or the other of these, but usually not both. And I personally have been wanting to focus more on the second one we're going to talk about than the first one. Here's the first one. This decision has to be an emotional decision. And it's wrong to leave this aspect out. See, verse 37 indicates that they were deeply affected by what Jesus did and why he did it. And they realized that they had participated in the death of Jesus, if nothing else, through their sin. And some of them might have been out there saying, crucify him too. So they were stunned. They were convicted by what Peter has just preached. But do you know what else? I think they were scared. I think they're saying, how in the world can we ever be forgiven? How in the world? After we did that. After all, in verse 23, he had said, <coughs> you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. You. See, folks, we should be emotionally convicted by the cross. And I think, I, you know, I'm one of these cradle Christians who's been in church all my life, and it's a blessing, but I'll tell you one of the negatives of that, of growing up in the church, is that sometimes it, the news has become so common to us that we don't get emotional about it anymore. We read in the Gospels, and well, oh, here's the part where he gets beat up, and here's the part where they curse him, and spit his face. Here's the part where he dies on the cross, and here's where he roses again. And we've lost the emotional aspect of it. And that's why it's been interesting to me as I've read stories about 
films of, the Jesus, uh, of Jesus' life being shown in, in parts of the world where they've never heard the story before what they see in that film. And there are stories, numerous stories, of masses of people watching the story of Jesus for the first time, literally sobbing, yelling at the screen, beating their breasts, the fact that Jesus is dying on the cross. And that's why we, as the old song says, need to survey the wondrous cross. And I love that stanza that says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. We need to be emotional about the cross. We need to be emotional when we pick up that communion cup. We need to ponder what he did. I like the, old, the poem Carrie McCutcheon wrote, entitled simply, Still He Walked. Listen to this about Jesus' walk. He could hear the crowd screaming, crucify, crucify. He could hear the hatred in their voices. These were his chosen people. He loved them, and they were going to crucify him. He was beaten, bleeding, and weakened. His heart was broken, but still he walked. He could see the crowd as he came from the palace. He knew each of the faces so well. He had created them. He knew every smile, laugh, and shed tear. But now they were contorted with rage and anger. His heart broke, but still he walked. Was he scared? You and I would have been. So his humanness would have mandated that he was. He felt alone. His disciples had left, denied, and even betrayed him. He searched the crowd for a loving face and saw very few. Then he turned his eyes to the only one that mattered, and he knew that he would never be alone. He looked back at the crowd, at the people who were spitting at him, throwing rocks at him, mocking him, and he knew that because of him, they would never be alone. So for them, he walked. The sounds of the hammer striking the spikes echoed through the, through the crowd. The sounds of his cries echoed even louder. The cheers of the crowd as his hands and feet uh, were nailed to the cross, intensified with each blow. Loudest of all was the still small voice inside his heart that whispered, I am with you, my son, and God's heart broke. He had let his son walk. And then it ends this way, when I forget how much God loves me, I remember his walk. When I wonder if I can be forgiven, I remember his walk. When I need reminded of how to live like Christ, I think of his walk. And to show him how much I love him, I wake up each morning, turn my eyes to him, and I walk. Jesus did that for us. Let's never get so familiar with the story that we lose the emotion, the emotion in our decision to follow and serve him. Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, described this Picture of Jesus going to the cross for us. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Notice all the we and our here. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amazing grace. See, that calls for an emotional decision on our part. What happened to Jesus the Lamb should have happened to me. 
But folks, that decision also is, needs to be an intellectual decision. And like I said, I think throughout most of the ages, religious people have gone to one extreme or the other. It's been all emotional or all intellectual. It has to be both to be biblical. See, verses 22 to 35, all that long section is all about the intellectual part. See, when we make a decision to accept Jesus' lordship and to follow him, we need to think about what we're doing. We need to understand the issue. We need to understand what's at stake. We need to understand the implications. We need to understand the consequences of either following him or refusing to follow him. It cannot be an, only an emotional decision, or it's not a good one. And it cannot be just an intellectual one, or it's not a good one. See, we need to think through the whole process. And that's what verses 22 to 35 are. If you look again at those, they're actually, they actually sound a bit like a courtroom argument. Because Peter is making a case to people's minds about who Jesus was, what he did, and why he did it. It is laid out systematically because it is intended to be convicting evidence. Twelve verses dealing with the resurrection to prove a logical, intellectual point. See, it's appropriate to get emotional about Jesus' cross, but we also need to ask questions like, do I really truly believe that story completely? All parts of it. Am I totally ready to follow him? and make him my Lord, verse 36. Am I ready to turn my life around? Am I ready to give up certain things or habits or even relationships that can hinder me following him? Those are all the questions we have to answer to really become a Christian, to really follow Jesus. See, our decision about verse 36 has to be both emotional and intellectual, because it's a serious decision. So the gospel message calls for a response, and it calls for a decision. But finally, it calls for a commitment. And that's why we need to think through it. You see, we must decide, first of all, who to follow. Not King David. <laughs> that's the whole point of verse 25 and following. King David was great messenger of God, even called a prophet here, servant of God. That's not who we're called to follow. We're not called to follow the miracle-working apostles. We're not called uh, to follow religion in general. Verse 36 says who we're called to follow. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. We're called to follow a man who lived a sin sinless life. We're called to follow a man who voluntarily died in our place. We're called to follow a man who claimed complete victory over death. See, the issue is not religion in this decision. The issue is not miracles. The issue is not hypocrites in the church. The issue is, what am I going to do about Jesus? Doesn't matter what everyone else is doing. What am I going to do about Jesus? That's the issue. That's the point of Acts 2. What am I going to do about Jesus? We must decide who to follow, but also we must decide how to follow. Verse 37, they asked that question. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were moved deeply and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Folks, Peter's response was quite clear in verse 38. 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's pretty clear. Hard to miss without professional help. <laughs> but sometimes things are not so clear. Let me tell you a quick silly story, and it's silly. But it makes the point of how if we don't make things clear, it can get really bad. Quite a few years ago, migratory birds in the United States would be tagged with metal bands. They might still do this, I don't know. And the Department of Interior used to put a code on a metal band around the uh, legs of the, these birds so they could track their migration patterns and things. And it, 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 instead of putting Washington Biological Survey on the bands, there wasn't room to do that. They abbreviated and they put this on there. Wash.bio.surv. But they had to eventually change that code when they got a letter one day that said, Dear sirs, I shot one of your crows. My wife followed the cooking instructions that were attached. She washed it, boiled it, and served it. And it was the worst tasting thing we ever ate. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a problem when we don't make things clear. And there can be bad consequences. Friends, the Holy Spirit, speaking through Peter, was absolutely clear in answering the question, what shall we do? It's hard to miss. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And they responded, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That response Peter gave by the Holy Spirit of God was true for all time, for all people, and for all places. There were two commands. He says, number one, repent. In other words, show sorrow, make a radical change, turn your life around. Number two, be baptized. Just like Jesus had told his disciples 10 days earlier in what we call the Great Commission, 10 days before this day, where Jesus had said this, well, notice also the authority thing first. <laughs> Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see, baptism helps us demonstrate that we are truly wanting to live a new life. So we are visually burying the old life Baptizo, that's what the word means, to dip or dip below or bury or immerse. Matter of fact, various church leaders through the ages have affirmed that meaning. Martin Luther said baptism is a Greek word and may be translated immerse. I would have those who are to be baptized altogether dipped. John Calvin, Presbyterian preacher, said the word baptize signifies to immerse. It is certain that immersion was the practice of the primitive church. John Wesley, founder of Methodism, said, buried with him by baptism, alluding to the ancient manner of baptizing by immersion. See, God ordained it so that that action 
would remind us of Jesus' death and burial and resurrection. And we would always see Jesus, 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 Jesus as that act is being performed or is, is performed on us. We see grace. <laughs> two commands, repent and be baptized. But also he mentions in verse 38 two responses or two promises, two results. <laughs> Number one, forgiveness. Our sins are removed and our relationship with God is restored. Wow. And secondly, we're given the Holy Spirit to live inside of us to empower us to live holy lives. So what shall we do? First of all, we don't change Peter's words. <laughs> what shall we do? It really depends on where each of us is with God right now. So the what shall we do may differ with every one of us in this room this morning, depending on where we are. Peter didn't even mention faith, but we know that's all through the New Testament. It's implied in their question. That's why he didn't mention it. He knew they had faith or they wouldn't have asked the question. So I want to suggest that some of you here in this room this morning need to deal with verse 36 first. There are some that have not answered these questions. You have to decide something about Jesus. In other words, is Jesus all he claimed to be? Did he really die for you personally and rise again? Is he really the only way by which we could be saved as he claimed in John 14, 6? Is he truly Lord in Christ like verse 36 says? So some need to deal with the faith issue. Do I believe these things about Jesus? You have to deal with verse 36 first. But there's a lot here this morning that have dealt with verse 36 maybe years ago. But some of you need to deal with verse 38. To repent and be baptized. And the amazing thing is that we each get to choose our eternal destiny, where we go after this life, and that's why Peter begged and pleaded in verse 40 and 41 for them to save themselves. Now, he wasn't saying you can save yourself. He was saying put yourself in a position to accept what God's offering you. You have to make the choice, he was saying. So what about you? Throughout the last 2,000 years, people have chosen to say, okay, I believe what the Bible says about Jesus. I believe what Peter said in Acts 2. And they've repented, and they've been baptized, just like the Holy Spirit said. One story I really like is from Joe Garman, who runs a prison ministry out of Joplin, Missouri. goes all over the country and the world. His ministry was doing a um, nine-day Bible conference at a maximum security state prison in New York State. Eight people gave their lives to Christ, were baptized at that conference. One of them was a lifer. A 75-year-old man who, was first, who first entered prison on his 18th birthday. And Joe describes he too broke down in tears, which is something a lifer rarely does in public. After he made his good confession of faith, he turned to the prison church and said, I've been running from God for 57 years, and I'm not going to run anymore. He said, prison treatment programs were not able to soften my hardened heart. Anger management classes could not do it. Fights and threats of punishment had no effect on me. I was a violent person who did not care if I lived or died. I used to laugh at Bible thumpers, but today I have received the gift of life. I'm not sure how to express my gratitude to God for all he has done for me, but I thank him sincerely. New life. New life. So what about you? 
question at the bottom of your, page, or your page and mine is this. What do you, what do you need to do? What do you need to do? Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Do you need to come and give your heart and life to Jesus and repentance and baptism this morning, demonstrating your faith in him? Or do you need to renew that commitment? Maybe it's just become something you did a long time ago and it hasn't meant much in your life lately. Maybe today's the day to repent and return to him and renew that commitment. Maybe today is the day you're going to get serious about being a Jesus follower. You're going to get involved. You're going to become loyal. You're going to live for Jesus no matter what. Some of you may just need to be more of a part of his church. That's the next verses. Very next verse. Verse 42 and following describes the early church. How they got together because they needed each other as these new followers of Jesus. They had to be together. They had to be together to remain faithful. Maybe that's what you need to make a commitment to today. But we're ready today like we are any other Sunday. We have warm water in the baptistry. We have robes or t-shirts you can put on. If you decide this is the day, you've already intellectually dealt with things and you emotionally say, I know he's calling me. And there may be others that may just need to say, I want to renew that, what I did 36 years ago. Because I haven't looked like it lately. So let's stand, let's sing, let's... Realize what we're singing when we say living for Jesus, and I hope you're ready to live for Jesus today in response to what he's done for you. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.